0: The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. It's good to be back with you all. Um, As Sheldon mentioned, we were away and I preached last Sunday at Grace Church. brought them greetings from you, and I bring you greetings from them. Um, It was great for our team to be together this year at the Pastors Conference. That hasn't happened in a number of years, and we got some good times together, just caring for one another and reflecting on what we were learning and just thinking about the future. Um, Yeah, the conference, uh, there were over 700 people gathered and about 120 guests who are not a part of Sovereign Grace Churches. Uh, it was good to catch up with brothers and sisters. I got to link with our, our brothers from Zambia just for a little bit. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's really good to hear what God is doing all around the world. And we're very encouraged by that. There's a, there's a video update we'll get to you guys as soon as it's available so you can get a sense of what's been going on in Sovereign Grace around the world. And God really fed us with His Word. And I felt very encouraged uh, and refreshed uh, in leaving. Um, and it was, as I was saying, it was good to catch up with so many friends who we've made over the years, people we who, who became close friends when we lived in Louisville and then in Pennsylvania. But you all are the dearest people on earth to us. So we're delighted to be back and gathering with you. So our original plan for this week, I remember last year, uh, Matt, who's teaching Grace Kids, kind of accosted me after we traveled and I came back and preached. And he's like, why are you doing that? You know? Well, this year, I had this wonderful plan to have uh, one of our fellow pastors from Florida come to preach for us this Sunday, and that fell through completely. Um, and I determined that I was going to take a break from sermon prep during the trip. And But thankfully, I had a message that I haven't preached for you all yet that I believe will serve us. In our current preaching series, we're right in the middle of a section in Acts that describes the early church in ways that contribute much to our understanding of our identity as believers. We're going to take a break from Acts today. To look at a New Testament letter that also helps to shape our identity. And then we're going to return to Acts next week as we head through to Christmas. So please make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now I love this letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, I find it to be such a realistic and hopeful book. Now if you can call to mind an overview of the letter. I'd forgive you for wondering if I'm mixing up my New Testament letters. Because it is next to impossible to read this book without being struck by how messed up. The church in Corinth was. Yet I find great comfort in that and more so in how Paul responds to their brokenness. When you grow up in church like I did, you can get the impression that church is for people who have it all together. That the real lives of real Christians are not messy. That misunderstanding never leads to anything good. It can make you proud when you think you're doing well and impatient, and condemning, uh, impatient with and condemning of the struggles of others. It can make you hide when you fall into sin and wonder if you're really saved when you can't seem to overcome your sinful tendencies. That's why I love how Paul confidently affirms the authenticity of the faith of these believers despite their many errors and applies the same gospel through which they were saved to address the scandalous situations in their midst. Let's pay close attention as Paul puts the gospel to work in bringing understanding and correction to these saints knowing that we too are in need of greater gospel clarity to shape our conduct. So let me read for you then from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. This is God's holy word given to transform us into his holy people. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I preached this message earlier this year. Uh, for Swallowfield Chapel, um, as they were working their way through 1 Corinthians. Now, normally when I'm visiting a church, I don't like to have to prepare something from scratch, but I, was just, uh, so I wanted to be so supportive of them preaching through this book that I took this on, and so it providentially is here for you today. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're met with one of the scandals in, in that local church. There were civil lawsuits being brought in the courts of the city between members of the church. Think of the unity that we see in the early church in Acts. You see, that unity gets tested by many things, including interpersonal disputes. And here we find an outraged apostle. Okay. On the surface of it, lawsuits between believers are not a good look. They seem inappropriate, but it's not immediately apparent why Paul is so scandalized by what's going on. Compared to the case of incest that Paul had to confront in chapter 5 of this letter, doesn't this sound much more like a misdemeanor than a crime? Why such a strong reaction? Have you ever heard of conduct unbecoming? Anybody ever heard that That phrase, conduct unbecoming? Yeah, it's a phrase that can be applied in a number of contexts, but one of them is when people in the military behave themselves in ways that undermine the mission or values of their organization. Take, for example, using abusive or disrespectful language. That would be distasteful for anyone to do. But in many jurisdictions, it takes on much greater seriousness when done by a soldier towards others, especially superiors or fellow officers. It's not simply about the action, but the action viewed in light of the identity of the person who has done it. But take it a bit further. Suppose that soldier was also the heir to the throne of a nation conduct unbecoming would be even more shameful because of who that person is to be in the future their destiny ought to affect their conduct in this passage paul is directing the gospel like a spotlight on the conduct of the corinthians and calling them out for conduct unbecoming for unchristian-like behavior but what relevance does first corinthians 6 1 to 11 have for us Apart from adding, you know, lawsuit against a church brother or sister to your t- to don't list, what does God mean for us to learn as we listen to Paul correct this church? Well, the commentator Stephen Um helps us, helps us shape our expectations when he says this. Paul's response to this situation has wide reaching effects on how we understand our, ourselves, our community and our interpersonal relationships, regardless of the legal character of a given situation. So here's what it boils down to. This is the big idea. Our conduct as a church must express our destiny and identity in Christ. Our conduct as a church must express our destiny and our identity in Christ. The way Paul goes about his work of correction in this passage is consistent with his approach in this letter as a whole. He brings these massive paradigm-shifting gospel realities to bear on specific situations and attitudes. The gospel redefines how we view everything. So here in the context of how some of the Corinthian church were approaching disagreements, Paul reminds them, that, reminds them that who they are already in Jesus, their identity, and what he has in mind for them in the future, their destiny, ought to be shaping how they're behaving. We too, as believers, need our relationship with God through Christ to shape how we view our relationships with one another and our behavior. So, once again, our conduct as a church must express our destiny and our identity in Christ. So, I want to help you then to posture towards this passage so that it can benefit you. When Jesus taught, both the crowds and the disciples heard his teaching. The crowds actually even listened gladly at points, the gospel tells us. But do you know what the difference between them and the disciples was? Or one of the differences? Questions. The disciples asked questions. And that paved the way to understanding, as Jesus disclosed more to them. So today is going to help us, as we work our way through this text, to be asking questions. As we do this, we're going to see two powerful principles emerge. First, understanding our destiny in Christ will shape our conduct. Then second, understanding our identity in Christ will shape our conduct. So, let's tackle this. Understanding our destiny in Christ will shape our conduct. Now, I've foregrounded the idea of understanding in both of my points. I've done so because if you if you scan this passage in your Bibles, you'll recognize that there are actually no commands in it. Paul at no point gives an imperative. He never directly tells the Corinthians what they are to do. But isn't it clear from hearing the text that the Apostle wants their behavior to change? Wasn't that clear to you in listening to the text? Here's what you need to notice. A part of the power of the Gospel is that change no longer depends on direct instructions, but can come through deepened understanding. God is not always depending on telling us what to do. I mean, think about how we parent sometimes. As our children grow older, what we do is we give them a rationale. We don't necessarily give them a command anymore. We don't tell them what to do. We tell them how their behavior should be shaped by certain realities. That's what's happening here. So what we're seeking today then in this passage is a deepened understanding of who we are. Because God has given us hearts to delight in Jesus and his work, when we grow in our understanding of the repercussions of the gospel, our conduct will increasingly express gospel realities. So focus with me then on the the, the text in your Bibles. If you scan these 11 verses, and you probably heard it as I read, you realize they're filled with questions. These questions are either about the behavior of these saints, or what Jesus has done or will do. So Paul is confronting them with questions that highlight the mismatch, the dissonance between their behavior and the implications of the gospel. It seems doubly appropriate then that we navigate this text by asking questions of it. So here's our first question. What was the nature of the lawsuits in question here? So what were they suing each other about? Paul calls them trivial cases in verse 2 and things of this life in verse 3. If you jump down to verses 6 and 7, Paul's reference to being defrauded and defrauding indicate that the grievances were probably over business dealings. Members of the Corinthian church would have provided a number of services for for each other, and disputes could have arisen in those, in those situations, leading to lawsuits. Now remember, smaller cities, if you have a particular business, if you're doing particular things, people are coming to you. Um, So uh, in the course of conducting the business of regular life, disputes are arising between believers. Paul's horrified reaction to the lawsuits he's heard about raises another question, though. Is it that Christians are never to bring things before secular authorities? That would be a misunderstanding of the apostle's position here. Based on what he teaches in Romans 13, Christians are subject to the government, particularly in its role to punish wrongdoers. That's why we do not handle criminal manners like sexual assault, abuse, murder, or embezzlement internally within the church. We damage the witness of the church by covering up criminal actions within the church. And you've seen this play out if you live for any number of years. A scandal comes out and what happened was church leaders knew and covered it up. But it's also true that we damage the witness of the church by bringing trivial disputes into the public life. So look at verses 2 and 3. Paul asks two questions about the future, about the destiny of believers. to challenge the present behavior of the Corinthian church. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? That was question one. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Question two. Okay, so you you guys are carrying that awareness around, do you? You guys knew that? that Judge angels? No, I, I, I think of songs we sing about the world that's coming, about heaven, and I cannot remember any of them prominently featuring this particular idea. You know, kind of like, Judging the ungodly, what will my heart feel? No, that's not what they wrote. It's just, I mean, the truth is, it's pretty hard for me to imagine this. Yet Paul expected the Corinthian church to know this. And the most reasonable assumption to make is that he expected them to know this because he taught them this truth. We're going to see this in the book of Acts next year. We're going to see that Paul spent more than a year and a half in Corinth planting, establishing, and instructing this church. But the question is, how are we supposed to know these things? Well, because they're here in 1 Corinthians. That's enough, actually. We're not given much detail anywhere else, but they're hints of of this truth in verses like daniel seven twenty two, and listen to revelation 2 26 and 27 the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him i will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as i myself have received authority from my father What Paul is doing here is that he's teasing out one of the implications of the Bible's teaching that the saints will possess the kingdom and reign with Christ. It's hard to know precisely what that's going to look like, but for Paul, it's wrapped up with ruling with Christ. Now, I would understand if you find the thought of participating in judging the world, in judging angels, a bit bewildering. But I want to point you to another effect it ought to have on us. It should be humbling. I mean, think about it. What do we deserve? Do we, ser- do we deserve to be judging or to be judged? It should blow our minds and humble us greatly that we, who apart from Christ, were, we, who, apart from Christ we are just as blind and as rebellious as the world, that we should share in Jesus' authority. It should amaze us that our justification is so complete, so thorough, that we could be at his side instead of facing him in judgment. Let's ask another question. How does Paul believe this destiny should shape the Corinthians' thinking and behavior? Listen to all your reasons again. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Paul is arguing from greater to lesser. It's like saying, if you are chosen to referee the World Cup final, how can you be incapable of managing a prep school game? You yeah? know, that's what he's doing here. The Corinthians were not thinking about who God had set them apart to be. The commentator Gordon Fee notes this. The absurdity of the Corinthian position is that the saints will someday judge the very world before whom they're now appearing and asking for a judgment. This was Foolish behavior that they should have been ashamed of. I mean, early in Corinthians, Paul points out that these saints prided themselves in being so wise. Paul asks, is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? I mean, those words would have stung. But recognize that at the same time, Paul was challenging them and pointing them to the fact that they do possess the wisdom that they need to settle disputes in their midst. Not because of the worldly wisdom they were so proud of, but because God had given them His Spirit. The same Spirit who enabled them to understand the gospel will enable them to apply the gospel to the complexity of interpersonal disputes. Now, if you if if you think of uh, if you think of the book of Exodus uh, and and kind of coming through those books, the journey in the wilderness. One of the things that's notable that helps us to understand the nature of the Spirit we have is when. God, when Moses was advised wisely by Jethro to say, look, you're you're killing yourself with trying to judge all of these people and to deal with all of their matters. Here's what I'm going to do. You're to appoint leaders. I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and I'm going to put that spirit on those leaders so that they will be able to judge the people. That token is nothing compared to the spirit living inside of us. It just doesn't compare. So sometimes we feel so weak and so unable, but we need to remember that we've been given the spirit. One of the things this passage did for me is it helped me to recognize that as I serve you and I help you, uh, as I help people within this church to work through disagreements, what I'm expressing is familial love. And it's actually an appropriate warm-up for what's coming. And the point isn't that we'll get everything right. There should be such an atmosphere of grace among us that imperfect resolution should be tolerable because our priority is maintaining unity. It's more about recognizing that if God has called us to such a task, he's already equipping us by revealing his heart to us in the person of Jesus. So we can serve each other not through self-reliance, but through trusting in him. It's clear when you read this text that Paul has a big issue with the Corinthians bringing their disputes into the city courts. But why is that the case? We've touched on it, but it helps to understand the background. The courts of Corinth were notoriously corrupt. I'm going to enlist some help from Roy Siampa and Brian Rosner who wrote about this. They say ancient Roman courts could not be relied upon to administer justice impartially since they were open to bribes and were partial to the status and power of the prosecutor or defendant or both. Now apparently the way this worked is that the poor could not sue the rich. Only those of standing could sue those of equal or lower standing. So it seems likely that the lawsuits were being brought by the rich and powerful who are taking advantage of the system to press their claims against their poorer brothers. And because court cases were not only about money, but about reputation and honor, they were as vicious as any celebrity trial of our day would be. Competing parties would do their worst, painting their opponent in as negative a light as possible in order to discredit them. And think about what would happen if other church members had to appear as witnesses. So, you know, I'm I'm suing Sheldon. And I'm calling Shelley on my behalf. So Shelley's going to have to choose a side and join the battle. You know? If these church members were trying to settle disputes in the courts, they would only reinforce divisions between them, and they'd be destroying each other's reputations in the process. Now, it makes you wonder how this church could ever think that acting in this way was okay. They were still acting like mere humans, like ordinary people, as Paul says of them in chapter 3, verse 3. But you see, we can learn a lot from their blind spots. Paul's questions show us that we can believe the gospel, even be grateful for the gospel, yet, be failed to be, yet fail to be shaped by the gospel in the way it's meant to influence our thinking and our behavior. Yet the remedy for this problem is not something else apart from the gospel, but a deeper understanding of the implications of the good news about Jesus. So, walk with me now. If our actions are not being shaped by the gospel, what do you think they're being shaped by? (coughs) Likely our culture. As much as we in the West would like to think of ourselves as independent thinkers, the reality is that we are shaped by influences around us. We're shaped by our family, by the community we grew up in, by society. We're also shaped by church culture, and unfortunately church culture can contradict the gospel, as was the case in Corinth. So forget about court cases for a moment. If the way you respond to grievances, to disputes, to when you have friction with other people, to interpersonal conflict, is not being consciously shaped by the gospel, then it is without a doubt a reflection of some aspect of the culture that you've imbibed. When somebody offends you, when there's an issue between you and another believer, when you feel like you've been unfairly treated or attacked, do you go on the offensive with your words and actions? Do you avoid the person but tell the story to others so that people will know what they really are like? Do you shift all the boundaries in the relationship? Do you pretend as if they do not exist? Do you nurse a grudge instead of seeking help from others to reconcile with them? Now here's the thing about us. We might be completely comfortable with the way that we respond to disagreements. It might even be for you a carefully calibrated defense mechanism designed to protect you from getting hurt or to maintain your dignity. But is your response to dispute shaped by the good news of the Savior who reconciled with his enemies and brings reconciliation between them? Is your response a reflection of the blood-bought unity of the church? Does it reflect the regard we ought to have for one another as saints, not because of who we are now, but because of the love that God has bestowed on us and who we will be when we're perfected? You see, how we respond to conflict will show whether or not we truly believe the gospel. It will expose belief in the gospel that is shallow and a matter of personal convenience rather than deep and thoroughgoing and a matter of personal and corporate obedience in light of a blood-bought destiny. Now, Paul isn't finished pressing the Corinthians with questions, but he progresses naturally from confronting their inadequate grasp of their destiny to confront the same deficit in their thinking about their identity. What we'll see in verses 6 to 11 is understanding our identity in Christ will shape our conduct. As Paul continues to question the Corinthian churches, he focuses on two particular aspects of their and or identity. First, we are family. And second, we are not what we were. Notice in verse 6 how Paul identifies the plaintiff and the defendant in the court case. They are brothers and sisters in Jesus. Now, it was shameful in Roman culture to take a family member to court. Here in Jamaica, if you looked up the court records, you'd see that civil cases between individuals are referenced by the last name of the participants with the first name in brackets. So if I were to sue my brother David... It would be Bain, Joel, versus Bain, David. Bain versus Bain. Anyone who saw that might first assume that we just happen to have the same last name. But if they found out that we were brothers, surely they'd wonder, what kind of family is that? That's exactly what was going on in Corinth. The unbelievers around them would hear them in the marketplaces and as they went about their business, greeting each other, oh brother, it's good to see you. Oh sister, it's so good to see you. And, they, and what would be weird to them is there'd be no distinction between rich and poor, between slaves and masters. And then they'd watch them rip each other to shreds in court like enemies. Their conduct contradicted the gospel that they were preaching. Paul wanted them to see how disgraceful their behavior was as a way of discouraging them from continuing in that behavior. And he, what he's, he's doing this in the letter because the shame is collective. Not just limited to those who are involved in the lawsuits. Just as was the case in chapter 5 with the man who was having sex with his stepmother, they needed to recognize that they had a responsibility to address the situation in a way that brought honor to God and preserved the holiness of the church. The conduct of a few reflected on the whole family. This is why Paul says in verse 7, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. If we have Christian versus Christian, we've all already lost. The unity that Jesus died to forge has been betrayed. The defeat is not the existence of disputes. All over the Gospels and in the New Testament we are given instructions for responding to offenses and disputes. The problem is the lawsuits. Paul is concerned about the reputation of the Gospel and therefore the reputation of the Church called to embody the Gospel to the watching world. So here's a question worth considering. What would it mean so think of hopefully an imaginary dispute, but maybe a real one that you've had with a believer, what would it mean to trust a fellow brother or sister to mediate that disagreement? You see, what the lawsuit guaranteed to the more powerful brother was a settlement in their favor. But to entrust the situation to the counsel and judgment of another brother or sister, that would require them, I mean, it would require us to humble ourselves. We'd need to submit our desires or anxieties, or rights, and any sense of injustice we might feel to God. We'd need to accept the wisdom of others despite their fallibility and submit to a resolution that might feel unsatisfactory to us. We'd need to pr- prioritize working things out over getting what we want, reconciliation over recompense, unity over self. And that's expensive, isn't it? But if Paul's argument, Seems onerous, but reasonable up to this point. Surely he's getting emotional and pushing the argument too far at the end of verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? What do you mean, Paul? Why not rather be cheated? I mean, come on. Nobody wants to be wronged. It's basic human nature. We hear it from our children as soon as they're able to say it. That's not fair. Yeah, you hear that all the time as parents, don't you? (laughs) So what could being cheated be preferable to Why not rather be wronged rather than what? Rather than disgrace your brother in court. Rather than contradict the gospel with your conduct. Wouldn't it be better to be defrauded, to embrace being wronged, to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars, to lose honor in the eyes of the watching world, than to devalue what Jesus has done for us? That's the calculus God is calling us to. What's the gospel truly worth to you? What's the gospel truly worth to you? Is it worth this kind of personal cost? Or do we value it only as long as it doesn't require us to lose the things we really value, like money, possessions, honor, and convenience? So what would motivate us then to choose to suffer wrong rather than pursue what we believe we have a right to? Jesus' love for us. And his example. Jesus chose to suffer wrong for us. He laid his rights down for us. The one who was rich beyond calculation became poor for us. The one who deserves all honor was despised and rejected for us. And he did this to make us into his brothers. In chapter 8, Paul will offer his own example of laying down his rights for the sake of the gospel. Here he wants the brother who feels wrong to give up his right to restitution for the sake of the reputation of Christ and the church. One of the implications of this, and a thread that runs throughout this letter, is that gospel realities must shape how we understand, treasure, and protect our relationships in the church. We're together not because of natural attraction, not because we merely like each other, but because we've been loved by Jesus and called to love and be dedicated to one another. In other words, we are family We are not a loosely connected bunch of people who happen to have have the same hobby. No, we're a family. It's important to recognize that in all this, Paul acknowledges that real wrongs have been done in this family. So this is not a case where somebody is just supposed to become a doormat as if this doesn't matter. No, he's acknowledging real wrongs here. In verse 8, he challenges those who are doing so. He makes it clear that the ones they are cheating are their brother's. But he goes beyond that in confronting them. Look at verses 9 and 10 in the text. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, that's direct, isn't it? It's clear and uncompromising and uncomfortable, isn't it? There's a reason you do not see vice lists as the verse of the day on your favorite Bible app. You know, you know, the verse of the day thing these days on the Bible app, if you pull certain verses, it has a nice graphic against mountains with purple hues. None of these verses make it into those graphics. Some of these vices we cannot help but notice because of our cultural climate, like homosexuality. Some we ought to take particular note of because of our cultural climate, like slanderers or verbally abusive people. I think it's okay to find these verses uncomfortable. I suspect that's the only way we're going to be served by them. There are uncomfortable truths here, but there's also unbelievable grace. There's an amazing implication hidden in these verses. There are some people who will inherit the kingdom of God. Some human beings will share in the ownership of the renewed creation that we sang about this morning. That means that God is a king who would share his kingdom with repentant former rebels. What kind of king is that? Who would share his kingdom with those who were making war against him, those who despised him. That's the kind of God we serve. Keep your eyes on the kingdom for a moment. Who will inherit the kingdom? Well, Paul doesn't tell us yet, but he says this much wrongdoers the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom now that may seem harshly exclusionary but it's not at all unreasonable we cannot expect to inherit the kingdom if we reject the king and rebel against his rule so who are wrongdoers here we're given a representative though not an exhaustive list paul does this at a couple of points in first corinthians where he gives what uh, what commentators term this vice list he's giving examples of the kind of behavior and the kinds of people who do not inherit the kingdom. So God is clear then about the kind of people he'll reject. That clarity, is, that, that, that clarity is kindness. It's not cruelty. If God were unclear about what displeased him, that would be unkind. But why does Paul bring all of this up here? Has he moved on from confronting these believers about lawsuits? No, he hasn't. In the immediate context, these verses serve as a warning to the members of the church whose lives were in danger of being characterized by wrongdoing. They were acting like, like the greedy, like thieves, like swindlers. And such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Luke twelve thirteen 13-15 records that Jesus was once asked to mediate a property dispute between brothers. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That should sound familiar if you are here in the summer when we preach the parable of the rich fool. Because that's, that's the situation that uh, evoked Jesus telling that particular story. What Jesus' reply helps us to see is that as far as God is concerned, what's at stake in our disagreements is not just stuff but the desires of our heart. So helping each other through disagreements means this. It means helping people to see how God is using the situation to show us our hearts. That's the nature of disagreements between us. That's what we learn in James. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Your desires that are warring against you. So what we're doing then as we help people through disagreements is we're not simply settling accounts. What we're doing is we are coming alongside the Spirit as He does gospel work within us. And the Spirit is saying, look at that in you. Look at that thing you want so much that you don't really care about this relationship with your brother whom I died for. And whom whom I've united you in family with. I think about this often these days. As I try to serve my boys who are going through a stage of a lot of squabbling. And there's a great temptation to just kind of shut down the argument. To be like, alright, stop that nonsense. You go that way, you go that way. But I have to remember that what God wants to do in those situations is show them their hearts. And so that's the patient work of parenting. To be constantly saying, slowing it down and saying, okay, what's going on? What do you want that you're not getting right now? And how is that affecting your behavior towards your brother? So living there is hard, it's tiring, but he gives more grace. Like Jesus did, Paul means to encourage those who felt wronged by their brothers, whom he has called to accept being defrauded. So think about it. Think about what Paul is doing here. If you're going to inherit a kingdom, the kingdom of God, in fact, what loss in the present would be too great to accept? These verses, therefore, serve as a warning and an encouragement to all Christians. At different times and in different ways, we are all in danger of being deceived into thinking that how we live does not matter if we prayed a prayer for salvation once upon a time. We're in danger of self-deception. The kind voice in Deuteronomy 29, 19. I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. you believe verses like that are in the Bible? You say to yourself, I shall be safe even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And we're in danger of being deceived by the world around us, which echoes the voice of our enemy. Did God really say? These verses warn us as a means of grace to turn our hearts to repentance. At the same time, they remind us that the God who calls us to a lifestyle of repentance rather than one of rebellion is pleased to give us the kingdom. Even though these verses are addressed in the first place to us as God's people, we don't hide them from the world around us even though they might be offended by them. Clarity is kindness. J.D. Greer gives wise counsel about relating to unbelievers when he says, It's better to acknowledge out the gate that we represent an entirely different kingdom, with entirely different values, and under an entirely different authority. And as we offer clarity, we can point them to the salvation that we have received. So we're back to our most urgent question. Who will inherit the kingdom of God? Or perhaps, better put, how can anyone inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, aren't we all sinners? Paul provides the answer in verse 11. He says this, and, and the, uh, uh, my prayer is that these words will land on you with the gravity that the Apostle Paul meant for them to hit us. And that is what some of you were, pointing back to the vice list. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, the warnings of verses 9 and 10 by themselves could cause us anxiety. But here Paul offers us glorious assurance. We are not who we were. Even though it was the case for some of us that our lives were formerly characterized by these sins, through the gospel, God has given all of us a new identity. We were wrongdoers, but we were washed, speaking of cleansing from sin, signified by baptism. We were sanctified. God has decisively set us apart as his holy ones. We were justified. God has declared us righteous, not because we cleaned up our act, but because Jesus took all of our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness. And all of this is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in joyful concert. What this means is that the implicit call to holiness in this passage is a call to become what you are. The call to to holiness here is a call to become what you are. The fact that we are no longer such people means that we have the power through Christ to stop doing such things. This is why Paul confronts conduct that is unbecoming for saints by reminding us of our identity. This is why we need to hear the gospel over and over again and to grow in our understanding of how it connects to every aspect of our lives. It is, after all, the power of God unto salvation. As we have walked with many of you and as we've discipled you, one of the things we've seen is that we all have these blind spots. So we profess the gospel. But the areas in our conduct and our thinking that have not been touched by the gospel. So you touch that area and it's like you're meeting a completely different person. You're like, but why are you behaving like that? How could you respond like that? And then worse, we justify ourselves in those situations. We say, no, no, well, you know, here are the circumstances. This is what was going on. What Paul is doing for us here is helping us to see this one particular area of interpersonal disputes and how the gospel should be reshaping our lives. As we grow in an understanding of it. So again, I want to emphasize. We talk about this. We talk about the fact that we are going to preach the gospel for you every Sunday. The reason we do that is not merely for people among us who have not yet come to faith. But our growth in our salvation, our sanctification depends on our understanding of the gospel. That's why we want to grow disciples who, are, who have a deepening understanding of how the gospel affects all of their lives. The power of the gospel is the power of God, unto salvation. This is your only hope if you are living according to your own standards and for your own satisfaction. What, it, what that means is you're living in rebellion against God who created you and to whom you owe honor and allegiance. No, here's the thing about it. You cannot change yourself, but you can throw yourself at Jesus' feet. Helpless. He is a king who welcomes repentant rebels and gives them a new identity and a new power to please him. So how you respond to this good news then is by trusting in Jesus' work to save you and turning from self to him. This passage has one more gift to give us. It equips us with language to speak graciously with those who believe that their sexual desires are their identity. The truth is we've all been shaped by expressive individualism, the you-do-you cultural air that we're breathing that can make us feel like we are dying when we try to respond to gospel demands. And what the gospel demands is you be holy. Truth be told, we are dying, but it's a death that leads to life. In speaking to those who think that ultimate joy is found in following their desires, we can acknowledge that we too still have many desires that displease God. But he has given us a new identity, which gives us the power to deny ourselves and please him and joy in doing so. So Christianity is not this miserable life where you just have to obey. And it's like, oh, man, I can't believe I have to keep obeying. But I'm kind of afraid about what God will do if I don't. So let's do this. No, the transformation that happens in us means that we are denying ourselves. You know, We are crucifying our flesh and we're rejoicing in it. We're seeing God at work in that. And it's almost like you get over the hump of that decision to do what pleases God. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in these wide open spaces of grace. Mm -hmm. And you realize, but this is amazing. So as we walk with others who are not Christians, we can help them to understand that to be a Christian is to trust God's word over our feelings. And to obey his word over our appetites. Because he has demonstrated his love to us through Jesus we adorn the gospel that we declare by living out the repentance, which we call others to. When we, get, when we allow our kids to go out with friends in situations that we're not going to be around to supervise them in, as I live in the car, I try to say this to them. Remember who you are. I'm not referring to them being a pastor's kid. This preceded my becoming a pastor. It was a kind of shorthand reminder that that we've raised them to follow Jesus and that they're going to be among people who are not raised in the same way as them. I want them to leave the car with a fresh awareness that the identity that we're praying for God to form in their hearts should shape their behavior. That's what Paul is doing for these believers in Corinth. That's what he's doing for us here. He reminds the Corinthian church of their identity and their destiny in Christ to confront the inconsistency they were displaying in their conduct. Our conduct as the church most express our destiny and our identity in Christ. As Paul calls these believers the gospel-shaped conduct, we see the glory of the work of Jesus on display. The brilliance and grace of the gospel is that it works not by applying pressure to change our behavior in our own strength, but by bestowing power to become what we are. What will ultimately transform us is not anxiety, but assurance. So family, we can set our hearts to please him this week in our relationships with each other and in our conduct in front of the watching world because he has washed us, set us apart for holiness and made us right in his sight. And we can be encouraged that we are never beyond God's supervision. He is always with us, but he doesn't stand over us to condemn. When we forget our identity, when we forget who we are and we fall into sin, he stands over us to pick us up And dust us off and graciously remind us. That's what you were. But it's not who you are. Become who you are. It's his acceptance that will empower us for obedience. Again and again. Let's pray. I want to pray particularly for any of you who you've been struggling through conflict or disagreements. With others who you know are in your family in Christ. And if you want to identify yourself, that would be good, because God gives grace to the humble. That's why we do this. Not so we can scandal people and say, ooh, look at them. You know. No, we do this because what we're admitting is that look, we need supernatural help. You know, when you think you have it, you don't usually ask for help. You know, like, I got this, I can carry this. But when you realize, whoa, I'm battling my flesh, and I need the work of the Spirit in me. So if anybody wants to just stick up a hand, All right. Well, let's pray for one another. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Where would we be without your word? Uh, We need your instructions. We need the insights you give us. We need to understand the implications of your work, Jesus. Thank you that your work is finished. Uh, So it means that the grace that we need is already poured out for us. Thank you that you've given us your spirit uh, who teaches us about jesus and exalts him thank you for exalting jesus this morning holy spirit lord i want to pray for those who acknowledge that they've been in some situations of conflict and disagreement and maybe relational breakdown with others who are believers and they recognize this morning that you're calling them to more than they've chosen up to this point in time lord i pray for those who are exhausted those who are intimidated those who feel like this this conversation is going nowhere they've tried and tried Lord, give them fresh grace this morning uh, to, 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 to be able to enter dialogue again and to ask for help from others. Help them to have the wisdom to ask for help for others to mediate situations. Help them to speak of Jesus and to speak of how precious the gospel is to them and therefore how precious their brother or sister is to them. Lord, I pray for reconciliation and restoration in these relationships and i pray for joy as they do it lord whatever the outcome i pray that they would do what you've called them to and feel your pleasure in doing it and lord i pray for us as a community as we walk together lord unfortunately the the reality is it's normal in churches to have rifts between people it's normal to have people who don't speak to each other anymore Uh, who who won't interact, who kind of stay on opposite ends of the community and form their circles around them. And over time, people begin to recognize, oh, those people don't get along. Lord, I pray that we would not be a church like that. Lord, would you do a work in us and help us to take the claims of the gospel so seriously that we're willing to do the hard work of reconciliation. Help us, Lord, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as you've called us to. Uh, convict us in times when we are prioritizing our own comfort our own preferences our own anxieties and fears over your commands help us lord to not to prioritize personal convenience but to prioritize obedience to you even as you yourself took on great discomfort to save us help us to remember lord that you are the kind of king who will give us the kingdom help us lord to look ahead to our destiny and therefore to walk in ways that please you now We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.